0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery.
1: Yes, welcome listeners, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor. We're sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery. I'm joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, we're also joined today by Steve Phillip, who is an investment consultant for Zacks Investment Management. Uh, gentlemen, good morning to you. Happy Thursday.
2: Well, Mark, it's yeah. a pleasure to be here. Steve, it's nice of you to join us. Thanks yeah. for having me. Right. Yeah. So we think that there might be, there's, a, there's an off chance there might be a fire drill or something. <laughs> I, if there is, we're, we're very old school and we will continue to transmit in the uh, yeah, in the event of the building yeah, burning. Ju- uh, we only attest. Uh, we, we, we will continue <laughs> to do our job. So That's it's indeed. like, uh, yeah, we're joking, but it, it is just a drill. So if that happens, I don't think it is. Yeah, but, well, uh, we won't, you know, it won't throw us. And that is
1: true. Because it is the steady investor
2: after that. That is all. true. It's not, it's you not you the not manic not get thrown investor. by... Uh, right, but right. whatever is going <laughs> on in the market. Okay, All well, right. there's,
1: there's plenty to talk about here. Uh, Steve, we're going to get to what, uh, what what you are here to, to talk about a little bit later in this program. Great. Uh, but for right now, I wanted to talk about some things that are happening uh, in, in the investment markets uh, currently. Q3 earnings season. Okay. Um, it's off to a very good start. J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, yeah. uh, even Wells Fargo, are outperformed expectations. Goldman uh, had a very
2: good number. Goldman had right. a very good number. Right. Yeah. I don't
1: think there was any that were particularly of the big banks. Right. That uh, that had a uh, even Citigroup, I believed, did better than expected. Anyway, so brings to mind two questions: Are banking majors doing well enough for you to believe that our
2: five quarter long earnings recession may finally be over? Uh, there is something to be said for overweighting the financial sector at this point in time. Uh, it, it is not necessarily based on earnings; it is based on valuations. Okay. So uh, what, what's going on is that you're looking at large. Uh, money center banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, multinational banking operations and their their price that they're trading at relative to the book value per share is lower than uh, some of them it's lower than one. So investors are implicitly uh, looking for the financial stocks to effectively destroy capital over time either due to fines uh, or losses, or something of that sort. Okay. And so, essentially, in certain financial stocks, you're paying a dollar. Uh, you know, you're, you're paying eighty cents uh, to get a dollar worth of equity. To get a dollar worth of equity wow. with this entire banking institution around you, designed to try and do that. So, even if there there are some headwinds in terms of interest rates, don't rise as fast as people are expecting. Uh, the valuation of these companies are so low because they don't tend to do very well when interest rates are in aggregate very low and when the yield curve is not upward sloping uh, that I think there is an opportunity here. It's, it, it, generally speaking, uh, banks will do better the higher interest rates go and the more upward sloping the yield curve. Because they can charge more for interest rates for their customers. Yeah. They, they're essentially borrowing at the, uh, at the short end of the, of the yield curve with right. deposits and let's just say it's a, a standard, uh, you know, uh, wonder, it's a wonderful life saving and loan. They're taking in everyone's deposits and then they're giving it out as mortgages. Right. So they're getting their revenue coming in as the interest on mortgage loans. And they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're paying out the interest on their deposits. Right. So the spread between those two numbers is going to generate their, their profits. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the yield curve isn't upward sloping, if, for instance, the uh, short-term rates are zero, and the the mortgage rate is only you know four percent or four and a half percent, that's not going to do well. But you're starting to see in the last couple of months, mortgage rates uh, start to uh, uh, tick up a little bit. And if you see interest rates start to rise, the expectation is they're not going. It's not going to be a parallel shift of the yield curve. Right. That the longer rates are going to go up higher than the shorter term rates, okay. and as a result, that upward sloping yield curve helps the bank. But if you, if you say that, well, what's really going on from an investor standpoint, you're paying 90 cents to get a dollar worth of equity in that bank. And that's, uh, that's unusual. Right. And so what, 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 what that means is that the market, and this is what Larry Summers is saying is the market is telling you it expects that bank to destroy equity over time because they're going to get fined because they're not going to lose money on trading. And if they don't destroy equity over time, when the whole institution is designed not to destroy equity over time, it's designed to make a return on equity, and maybe the return on equity is not going to be 10% or 9%, maybe it'll be 5% or 7%, you're going to benefit as sentiment changes, and they start to pay uh, not 80 cents for a dollar worth of, uh, of uh, bank equity, but they'll pay a dollar for a dollar worth of bank equity. So essentially, the, the only time you see this in financial instruments where they're paying $0.80 cents for a dollar worth of assets are usually in uh, closed-end funds where the closed-end fund is, is uh, trading at a discount uh, to net asset value, and that's because they expect the fees to occur and there's no way to liquidate the closed-end fund. And sometimes with uh, with things, uh, you know, that's the only place I've really seen it to this extent. And so what that tells me is there might be a real opportunity with some of the larger money center banks, and the risk is, of course, that you have a repeat. Of the financial crisis, Deutsche Bank comes under pressure. Uh, the, is, the Greek, uh, the Greek banking system comes comes under pressure. All these things uh, could conceivably happen, and the uh, concern is that that's going to hit. Uh, you know, cause some sort of domino effect on the banks. But you have every regulator in the world, every uh, policymaker in the world, and every manager at the bank completely focused on trying to avoid these things from happening. Sure. And so if I, I think the next risk to the market is not it's not going to be the risk everyone's preparing for, which is in the financial sector. So if the financial sector sort of stabilizes and interest rates go up a little bit, uh, these banks should not be trading at a discount uh, to their book value. Right. Now, well, let's assume that the Fed does raise rates of uh, uh, 25 basis points, let's
1: say, in December, for, yes. uh, for argument's sake. Okay. Uh, how do you see that affecting, in near term, uh, the, the big banks?
2: The, uh, in, the, in the near term, uh, it's going to be seen as a positive. If, if rates go higher for longer or higher faster than people are anticipating – and the rates go up because the economy is recovering, mm-hmm. and not just because people are, are, you know, selling bonds because they're worried about debt levels or uh, you know sovereign debt levels. They're creating a financial bubble, right? Or exactly. So it's it, 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 well, if interest rates are rising because the economy is recovering, mm-hmm. that should generally be good for the banks and bad for the utility stocks. Right. So if you look at a spread uh, between XLF, which is the banking ETF, and uh, XLE, which is the energy ETF, mm-hmm. and you uh, you regress the differential between those two ETFs on uh, expected changes in interest rates, as you expect interest rates, uh, not XLE, XLU, which is uh, for the utilities, as you expect interest rates to go up, uh, you're going to see that spread start to increase. So your your long XLF, your short XLU, which is a utility ETF, Mm -hmm. uh, if interest rates rise, you're going to expect to see that spread do make a positive return. okay? And if interest rates fall, you'd expect that spread to do a negative return. Our expectation is that we are going to see interest rates rise. And as a result, for instance, in our large cap value strategy, which is up you know, very nicely uh, year- to-date, uh, we are slightly overweighting uh, financials by maybe about one and a half percent relative to our benchmark. Okay. And we're uh, underweighting uh, utilities. Uh, and we're underweighting energy. okay. And so that's all very consistent with sort of uh, interest rates uh, potentially rising.
1: Okay. Well, let's go back to to q three earnings season and the, uh, as I' mentioned before, the five quarter long earnings recession. Yeah, uh, now banking majors take up a, a, a large, the sector takes up a large segment of the overall revenues of the s and p five hundred, let's say. Yes. Uh, but is that enough to to, kind of predict that we will be out of this earnings recession based on these solid numbers, which, by the way, are happening without an interest
2: rate uh, rise. So again, a lot of corporations take negative earnings announcements to keep expectations low. So there's a, you know, in corporate management, you want to under-promise and over-deliver. Correct. And uh, you want to do that if you're managing a division of IBM, and you probably want to do that even more if you're the CEO of IBM. So everyone is trying to under-promise and over deliver. And so what, what's happening from an earnings standpoint is the bar is being set so low uh, that there there is surprise to the upside. But if we start to see sort of wages start to increase, we start to see GDP pick up a little bit, mm-hmm. it would it would not be uncommon to see some degree of revenue growth or earnings growth. Uh, start to materialize and uh, push the market a little bit higher.
1: Okay. All right. And when you're talking about energy, uh, the energy sector, for a a moment there, Uh, oil prices look to have solidified for the time being, around $50 a barrel. Yeah. Uh, That's close to double what oil prices were at the bottom, if you remember, just not that long ago. Right. A year or two ago. Uh, OPEC meeting late November uh, chances of a deal to curb production uh, how do you see the economy affected by oil prices at or above fifty dollars a barrel you said you're underweight energy but are you is this assuming too much
2: no I, I think energy is not going to return to the levels it was in uh, in in previous years sort of the peak oil years I my expectation is that oil would appreciate at sort of an inflation rate over the next uh, three to five years okay so if I would say inflation is maybe, five, maybe two maybe to three percent over a five-year period, I would say, uh, you know, if we're at $50 for a barrel of West Texas intermediary, uh, we, we're, we're going to uh, go to probably 60 to $65 over a five-year period. Right, which is not historically high. Which is not, which is not an historically high level. It's, there's, there's too much technological change. There's, there's too much in the oil sands. There's too much supply. Demand is too weak. Uh, for oil prices to dramatically shoot up and, and the world different. is changing mm-hmm. and it's moving away from oil right. And it's moving towards alternative uh, forms of energy creation. It's moving towards alternative electric vehicles and things of that sort sure. this trend is going to accelerate over time uh, And if oil increases in price, it just increases the rate of acceleration essentially So you don't expect it long I mean, Again, long-term and- long-term it's hard to look at long-term and say there's a long-term growth prospect here. There's oil on the ground. It's become easier to get oil. I mean, and not easier to get, but there's been technological changes so you can find more oil. Correct. And if prices rise, it's very clear the supply will just come in and, and slap it down on, until prices fall. And so it, it, to say, well, our price is going to rise dramatically, they're, they're likely not going to. So I, I'm not, I, I would tend to underweight energy and I would tend to underweight utilities over time uh, just from sort of a, a qualitative standpoint. Oh, very good. Well, I wanted to mention to the people who are listening
1: to The Steady Investor, you should stay tuned in the coming weeks as we will discuss some exciting, oh, actually, this is the week. This is when, when Steve Phillips talks to us a little bit later. He's going to be uh, discussing some new opportunities uh, soon to be offered at Zacks Investment Management. And if you'd like to have some more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call Zacks Investment Management uh, right here in Chicago at 800 245 Two nine four three, uh, and that you can discuss at length, your, at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best for you and your family. Uh, for more information, you can also email us at ziminfo at zax.com or visit our website online zimwealth, Z I M is in management, wealth.com. Uh, call in to get a uh, free stock market outlook, too. That's eight hundred two four five two nine four three. That's written by uh, Chief Strategist John Blank. And there was a new one that just came out after the most recent uh uh, non-farm payroll uh, survey so that's a a nice fresh report Uh, that's the free stock market outlook by calling that same number 800-245-2943 okay i think we've got some time in this segment to turn to the general election which is happening in just two and a half weeks from now okay um seems to be continuing a solid lead for hillary clinton the democrat over donald trump the republican And you said last week that the best thing the markets could expect would be for a president to so the White House to be um, run by one of right. to be gridlocked. Right? right. So let's say Hillary Clinton wins. Democrats take the White House. Republicans keep the Congress. That would be the best way to do it. However, we're seeing a new picture emerging, perhaps that the Democratic Party perhaps could also take the Senate. This is led by progressives, perhaps anti-Wall Streets, I'm not, I'm not sure, but Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, people mm-hmm. like that who have determined they are committed to getting tough on Wall Street. Right. Uh, how do you see this potential Uh, to affect
2: things compared to what you were expecting. Generally, as an investor, what you want is uh, no change. And if change is going to occur, you want the least amount of uncertainty about the change. All right. So if there's something that politically that happens that makes you think that there's going to be increased scrutiny of drug companies okay because right. of control of drug prices and people are upset that some of these drugs have these monopolies on these very specific uh, drugs and they're gouging consumers and increasing prices it, it's a public policy issue of whether these companies should be charging uh, the most amount of money they possibly can and it's become and, a campaign and, and it's issue it's become a campaign issue and things like that so if you're sitting there and you're sitting there with a small cap drug company and you actually understand what's going on with the small cap drug company and you understand that they're getting a large amount of their profits uh, from a very few number of drugs uh, which aren't available as generics yet and which they have uh, from some sort of, uh, you know, frictions in the marketplace, basically monopoly uh, on that drug and mm-hmm. people need the drug and they can raise the prices, whatever they want, you, you, you want to know what's going to happen. And so if you know what's going to happen, you can say, OK, this, this company is going to be worth this amount of money or it's going to be worth uh, less or more. Uh, but if there's uncertainty, it, 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 it'll increase the volatility of that sure. uh, security and you'll want to reduce it, your exposure. So the, the market doesn't really care what the rules are, but it doesn't want the rules to change because you can evaluate things if the rules are sort of constant over time again, when you're trying to determine how much a stock is worth, uh, you're looking at the, you know, present value of future dividend payments going out years and years into the future. Right. And so you're not just saying, is it what it's going to earn next year or the year after that, especially with a drug company? uh, You're expecting, you know, you're looking 20, 10, 15 years into the future in terms of what the earnings are going to be and what the dividends they could potentially uh, pay an owner to be. They may not pay it, they may reinvest it. Um, Anything that that increases the uncertainty of those payments, the dividend payments or the earnings that the company generates is a negative for uh, shareholders. So it introduces, so so what the market wants is uncertainty. If you look what happened in sort of, I I think was the 2000 election when there was like, uh, there was an election and then there was just, you know, lawsuits back and forth as to hanging chads in in Florida. I remember it. The, The market reacted more negatively to that than it would have to either of the two parties winning. So if one of the two parties win, they know, okay, here's what likely is going to happen. If there's this massive uncertainty, it, it, the market reacts. and They say, people say, well, let me, I have cash. Let me just wait till this is uh, resolved before I put it to work. But but be, that being said, as an investor, you should be ignoring the presidential election. Completely ignoring Completely it. ignoring it. It is a blip in the upward movement of the market over... Uh, over a period of time, effectively, that is
1: not the fire drill. No, that's say, not
2: man. the fire drill. I don't know. <laughs> that is not the fire drill, and I apologize for that. But it's it is a blip over the uh, market over time, effectively. Okay, all right. So, uh,
1: so I was going to ask another question about the election, but you're no, saying no, completely ignore. No, no, please go
2: ahead. I'm not saying completely. I'm saying it. It it, it it's like it it, it it has less of an effect on the market than Brexit.
1: Less of an effect. Less. Right? Le-
2: much, much less. Much, Bre- much less. The Brexit only,
1: was, did happen. It seemed... well. The, the, and even
2: Brexit, it seemed to have an effect on the day it happened. Then afterwards, it, it, it seemed to recede from, from uh, sort of consciousness, and it was actually kind of positive for the U.S. market. There's less of an effect on uh, equities for the presidential election uh, than on Brexit. Brexit was a bigger issue. There's less of an effect... That the, who is president than who is the Fed chairman and whether the Fed chairman decides to raise rates faster than what people are anticipating or keep rates lower for longer. So the, the effect of the presidential election really is twofold is one is how how does it affect monetary policy? and the Federal Reserve is pretty much independent, mm-hmm. and the second thing is how does it affect fiscal policy? Well, the fiscal policy can't be done by the President. They have to have the approval of the Congress. That's right. So it, it, the effect on the economy is relatively weak. Okay. okay. Well, let's,
1: let's, let's, uh, let's pause it right there. We're going to okay. take a, a, a commercial break. We'll be right back with The Steady Investor, part two. Um, so please stay tuned. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here voice america business network
0: the steady investor show is brought to you by zacks investment management a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers at zacks we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934. Or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. We're listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back, listeners of Voice America's Business Channel. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. Um, Mark Vickery, your co-host, joined again by Mitch Zacks, the portfolio manager and founding principal of Zacks Investment Management. Um, Mitch, we were talking about the election. We're going to get off of that right now. We're talking about Q3 earnings. Get off of that too. Yesterday there was a the Q
2: three earnings are much more important than the election. Much more so important, like absolutely. we should, should spending five times, ten times the amount of time on Q three earnings. Everyone's very concerned about the election. Well, why don't we do that? Then? Okay, because, well, because we've today got, got, we've got well, we yeah. do. We have okay. Apple reporting after the bell okay. today. And I know got, we don't like to single out particular right. stocks
1: or companies, right. but right. Apple's a different right, story. Right. I mean, would you say that? Uh, if it if it does particularly well, that's going to be a boon for technology. I think technology firms tend to be doing well right now anyway, don't they?
2: Technology firms seem to be doing well. I, uh, I would tend to overweight technology relative to the benchmarks going forward. Earnings are very strong. It's very, very good to be an owner of technology companies. Uh, it, the issue is that as the base changes from sort of manufacturing and service-oriented towards technology... The benefit in aggregate to the economy of some of these tech stocks is not as great as uh, other technological changes that have occurred. How do you mean by that? How do you mean by that? Think about you, you have Ford coming up and they start making cars and they employ people in the United States. And there becomes an assembly line and all the people working at the Ford plant start making money and all the executives. And they have large, large numbers of people and there are multiple car companies and they're competing against each other. Uh, think about what Apple does. Apple doesn't produce their goods in the US. They produce all the goods overseas. So as people buy more and more iPhones, what is Apple doing? They're making a differential between what they're selling the iPhone for and what it costs to make them. So they take the money in, they pay out all these foreign producers, and the rest is kept as profits that don't go to the people who work in the Apple store. It goes to the owners of of Apple stock, to the investors, to right. the investors. So, so mm-hmm. what's happening is that the, the it's kind of becoming uh, technological change is is very beneficial for Apple and for Apple shareholders, but it may not be super beneficial for the economy as a whole. It's beneficial for the consumer who has a phone now that does has all this informational access. If you think and you back 15 continue. years ago. Right. And it, you, how do you measure that? But in terms of does it increase jobs? No. Does it even cause more companies to form? No. Okay. If you think about the, the FANG stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, uh, Google, and let's throw Apple in there, these these firms have not created large numbers of competitors. Right. There's no competitor to Facebook. There's no... Competitor to to Amazon. There's no competitor to Google. There's no competitor to Netflix. So what's happening is technology is leading towards a sort of winner-take-all environment. And so if you look at like Tesla... And they're all trying to make autonomous uh, cars. Sure, driven. there was an
1: announcement yesterday about that.
2: Think about what the past was. There were, in each municipality across the country, there are people who had taxi medallions where they limited the supply of taxis, right. and they owned taxi companies. And they made a little bit of the profits. You know, there's not one giant taxi mogul making all the taxi profits across the country. There's a taxi mogul in Cincinnati, and there's a taxi mogul in Chicago. Yeah. There's probably a couple. And there's a taxi mogul in, you know, in small business owners. Small business also. owners, and they get larger. And there's multiple taxis in all these municipalities. And there are multiple drivers driving around. right? So there are companies. The companies are competing against each other. They're getting lower costs for people. There's all these barriers to competition uh, through due to regulatory obstacles. Right. Uh, but you're, you're generating uh, from a service that's being provided with these taxi services. It's feeding all these people in the economy. Right. Now, also now, being subverted uh, by now, Uber. Right, and, right. So now you have autonomous vehicles. Okay. Right. And you have one software that is the, quote, driving software. And whoever develops that, I can see how there will be a huge barrier to competition, a huge moat around that. In that once you have the company actually deploying the software and working on the most number of cars on the road, no one's going to buy the competing software. They're going to just buy the existing software because that existing software will get better and better and better. Because they have all these cars driving on the road. So they're getting more and more feedback. So you come up with your new company and you're going to start your competing uh, driving software. Well, it's going to be impossible. They're going to have, you know, 300,000 cars driving around with the software, getting feedback and updates and making it the complete safest software they possibly can and not sharing the software with anyone. Right. So what, what happens is you go from multiple firms making profits to one firm making more profits but employing fewer people and c- causing fewer jobs to be created. Right. So there's going to be one winner from the autonomous cars. From the existence from the p- production of a car, there are multiple multiple car companies that developed, they competed over a 50 year period and there's uh, you know three or four, I guess three major car companies in, in the United States. Right. And one overseas and one in Europe and one in Germany and one in England and there's like five and one in, and two in to- and two in Japan and multiple car companies. Right. That's not going to happen with autonomous vehicles. There's going to be one winner. There aren't yeah. going to be six winners. The same way with Facebook, there's one winner. With Amazon, there's one winner. With Netflix, there's, you know, yes, you have these other uh, competing services, but it's it's this economy of scale that's occurring. So what, what, what the, the, the concern is that as the economy, as technological change causes this winner-take-all uh, corporate environment, that it's going to be good for consumers. Think of all the, the, the how easy it's going to be to get a cab, how much lower cost it's going to be, yeah. you know, sixty percent of the price of the cab is the person driving it. Sure. Uh, and it, it's 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 going to work more efficiently. Yeah. But there are going to be fewer jobs created and fewer firms that benefit from this. And the benefits are being going to a narrower and narrower group of uh, uh, of actors, essentially. And so so that's going to be the driving force causing uh, some sort of disruption in the political structure and in the society and in the economy going forward. It's that you're going to have multiple firms. It's not going to happen in every firm. It's going to happen in these firms where information technology is really uh, creating a service that is duplicable because unlike other technologies once you have that software for the car company, mm-hmm. the cost to reproduce it is zero. It costs zero. You have right. the software, it's intellectual, you just you make it one time, copy and you apply it, it to copy it, a- it right. millions of times in millions of cars. Yeah. And so what happens is one person's gonna do that better than anyone else. Well, and and that one that one person or that one company is going to get all the economic rents or all the profits associated with this activity. And so what I see from a long-term perspective. That's it's it's going to cause weak job growth. Right. Right. Which is uh, it, right. it is good it's for like, the, it, it, to
1: the investor of that company that wins that. particular. I, I don't
2: see the technological change causing increasing in job growth. Right. When you have uh, newspapers disrupted with Craigslist, mm-hmm. what happened? Everyone at the newspaper, uh, you would go to the Sun-Times, you go to the Tribune, they would have a staff of 15 people selling classified ads. Right. Every paper in the country. Right. That's right. It, 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 those it jobs not, are all gone. Absolutely, right. So what's happened is everyone's been made better off. You can now post uh, classifieds without having to pay five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. It's extremely easy to look. Yeah, the convenience uh, is way. we up. need to hire people, we can we can post on job sites. We can post electronically. You don't have to go to the Chicago Tribune and pay you know three thousand, four thousand dollars to run multiple classified ads. Uh, but but the net result is there, there are going to be fewer jobs. And because so so what happens is. The, the total amount of money spent on classified ads has gone lower and lower and lower, but it's gone to very, very few number of firms. Right. So from a society standpoint, you're getting something better. You're getting more classified ads, but from a, from sort of a policy standpoint, the, the jobs are being very concentrated in a group. The net result of this over long periods of time is going to be very, very positive for owners of equities.
1: Right. So be invested in these companies.
2: Yes. If you own the company that is creating the software, there's going to be a uh, for an autonomous vehicle, and that's why they're bidding up Tesla.
1: Right. And and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Look back 100 years. The uh, the the farm hands were yes. uh, were displaced by the tractors that were were the, the technologically superior to what they could do uh, right. with their you know with their backs. So they moved to the big cities and got the jobs in the factories building cars. Right. The robots eventually supplanted them. So then right. they were out looking to get a medallion as a taxi driver. Right. Now the Uber drivers are taking that right. away, and now the autonomous drivers are taking them out of those driving. Right.
2: Jobs. The, the the difference is that the concern is that now we're at this tipping point in the society where technological change can be implemented with just the technology without having the people involved with it. Right. So that, whereas before the farm, had, the, the, the person would get tractors and he would, you would still need the person to run the tractor. Right. If the tractor starts running itself, you don't need the people. You need someone to program the tractors. You need someone to oversee the tractors. You probably have much, much larger farms. And we talk to people who work, who you know, grew up in Iowa or something like that and grew up in, a, you know, in an agrarian uh, economy, uh, what they said is the farms have gotten much, much bigger. They've employed fewer and fewer people. Right. Richer, too. And richer. Then they and they, 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 they make more money, and they're, they're, they're more profitable. It's more efficient. But the benefits of that accrue to a smaller group of people. So the net result of this is it's very good to own equities. It's very good to own these companies right. as a shareholder. But it's going to be—it's going to cause some disruption in the society, sure. and I think that that is one explanation why we're seeing very very low labor participation globally and very very low uh, sort of uh, employment growth globally, right. and very very low inflation. Essentially, so essentially, the technological change that is affecting the economy is causing inflation to be very very low, and it's causing job growth to be very very weak. And it's causing new company creation uh, to be at all-time lows. So if you're sitting there and you're Johnson & Johnson, there's there's not companies that are growing to compete with you. The people who are creating drugs now are just trying to sell the company to a large company. Yeah. And sell the drug. They're not trying to say I'm going to come up with a great drug, and I'm, we're going to be we're going to compete with Johnson and Johnson. Well, They're saying we're going to come in. up with we're going to come up with a great drug, and we're going to sell it to whoever's going to pay the most money for the drug. Sure, that for, we to make three billion dollars exactly, and, we'll and then that's it. So, so it's like because of this change that's occurring, if you own these larger multinationals, I think it's very, very positive over a long term. Okay. Well, that
1: said, uh, today we just had a new initial jobless claims report. We're still looking pretty good on the on the U.S. labor market. So we had, I think, 260 claims uh, for the past week. Still within range, I think 250 is the 4 week right. moving average. Um, you know, unemployment we saw in the BLS report from last week, uh, you know, 4.9%, 5%. Yeah. 5, I think it's 5 again. Uh, still, these are good numbers from an historic perspective. You're looking
2: toward the future, I understand. Right. But for right now, employment looks pretty good. Right, but the issue is the labor force participation. And that's only like about 63%. It's the lowest it's ever been. So yeah. it's, not, it's not the number of people looking for jobs who can't find them. It's the number of people who have removed themselves from the, uh, the job market. Right. There and you. that's also consistent with increased efficiency. If you had, right, right, if you have, as you have more and more automation in the society, the number of people that need to work becomes lower and lower. So they have to start finding things to do. Do, to, 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 to employ. But that's and,
1: also an interesting thing when you're talking about investing in equities. Right. You're looking for those companies that do
2: have But, uh, but taking efficiency. it back from sort of the sort of the grand macro picture to like, you know, the, the day-to-day next quarter, it does appear that we're getting a strengthening U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. It seems there's a very, very, uh, there's a declining chance of recession materializing. Right. Earnings are starting to pick up. Interest rates are starting to pick up. Right. Jobless claims are starting to tick down. All of this is consistent with growth sort of uh, increasing. And if I look anecdotally, what I see amongst investors is tremendous negativity. So I'm not running into investors either at pension funds or individuals or uh, large institutional investors who are saying to me, you know, Mitch, I'm looking to massively over uh, to, to increase my allocation to U.S. equities. No irrational exuberance. It's not even irrational exuberance. It's not even it, 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 there's a there's not even a tendency to say, listen, there there these large pension funds are constantly looking for alternatives to equities, they in either in the hedge fund space, the private equity space, the venture right. capital space, and all of this is very very positive for equities over time. I mean, the, the negative is you, you know you you see some uh, degree of uh, frothiness, maybe. On the margins, uh, but it, it, you don't see in, in previous bull markets that end because you have very, very high P multiples. Uh, you, you generally see euphoria among certain segments of the market,
1: and that's when you see a, a bubble in a particular industry.
2: Is I don't know if you want to call it a bubble, but there's a there's a there's a disconnect between reality and what people are paying for these types of stocks. They're paying way too much, and for- it's not usually the whole market. It's usually some group of stocks, and that that just inflates and inflates, and more and more stocks try and go in that direction. Sure, It changes over time what that group of stocks is. But if I look at uh, P multiples now, they're a little bit higher than where they've been historically because interest rates are so low. Mm -hmm. But if I look at the valuation of equities relative to, to bonds, equities are very, very cheap relative to fixed income instruments. So if you see interest rates tick up a little bit, not dramatically increase. And you see earnings start to increase. Mm-hmm. The the sentiment is so negative on U.S. equities, you can surprise to the upside. And again, I, I look back in 2009, and, and in 2009, returns were very strong for the U.S. equity markets. It wasn't because earnings were very good, okay. and it wasn't because things were going well in the economy, and it wasn't because earnings reports of the uh, major financials were very strong. No, they weren't. They weren't. What happened is is they weren't, as bad as what the sort of danger scenario that was being priced into the market. Right. So you had a surprise to the upside. So you surprise to the upside. I can't exactly put my finger on how we're going to surprise to the upside. Okay. But the fact I can't put my finger on it and grasp at a idea, oh, this is how we're going to surprise to the upside tells, and, and no one else can either, right, so they can't trade on it, tells me that there's a greater chance that you can surprise to the upside because all the information you're processing is sort of neutral to slightly negative. And so when all the information is neutral to slightly negative, it's easier for the market to surprise to the upside. And in, in periods when uh, you, you surprise to the downside, the information is all very, very positive. The U.S. growth is going very strong. These technology companies are going huge. The IPO activity is creating all this wealth. The wealth is being spent, etc. It, it just my feeling, my intuitive feeling is it's easier for the market to surprise to the upside because there's more negative sentiment on the on the positive side. You have the Fed model saying stocks are very cheap relative to bonds, and uh, you also have the low amount of IPO activity. Companies right. are not issuing new stock. They're issuing new debt and they're buying back their stock. And those so, are anyway. deals
1: that have happened have done
2: fairly well, right? So. And as a general rule of thumb, look at what a company, look at what a corporate finance department is trying to sell you, and try and do the opposite. So the company is trying to to sell people debt and they're trying to buy back stock. What you want to be doing is you want to be trying to do the same thing they are doing. You want to be selling your debt and you want to be buying stock. And the reason they're trying to do that is that the stock is 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 inexpensive relative to bonds. Right. And, the, and the reason is interest rates are so low. So what's, what's going to have to happen is you're, you're going to have to see interest rates rise. Mm-hmm. And uh, as interest rates rise, you start to become worried about the market when you start to see a lot of IPO activity. Okay, When people are knocking on the doors saying, oh, here's a new IPO, and then people are actually trying to purchase it. But right now, there's not a lot of IPO activity, which is consistent with equity valuations in the public market not being substantially higher than private market valuations, which is why they're not going to, why isn't isn't Uber is this massive company? Well, they say they don't want to be public. They can raise that. Now, why are they not going public? It's very simple. They're not going public because the money that uh, the valuation, the public market will place on them is lower than the valuation they get in another venture capital funding round. Right. And so they're trying to increase the value of their company. And they will keep going in the direction that increases the value of that company. Right. And that does not lead to the public markets. That tells you public market valuations are lower than private growth valuations. Right. Okay. Let's and, see. That, and that's not what happens in a, at the top of a bull market. The opposite happens. Very good. Uh, let's let's take a short break. On
1: And we'll be right back. We want to talk to Steve Phillip as well. So please stay tuned to The Steady Investor. Thanks for, for being here.
2: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zax Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zax, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zax focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to zimwealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor.
1: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
0: we're listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now back to the show.
1: Thanks for sticking around. This is The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, today, we are also pleased to be joined by Steve Phillip, the Investment Consultant for Zacks Investment Management. Uh, good day to you, Steve. Thanks for having me, Mark. Not a problem at all. We're happy to have you here. Um, we wanted to start by talking about something called the four timeless keys to investing. Can you help us out with that? Well, essentially what we're trying to do here, Mark, is is harness
3: the, the brilliance and the insight of Mitch and, and his investment management team into how to overcome some of the challenges we face as investors today. Okay. And and that ties into these four basic principles. Uh, the first, I mean, and most of these are obvious, but if you've been investing for a long time, you know that it can almost be a full-time job. The challenges sure. are innumerable. And and one of the ways that we here at Zacks Investment Management attempt to overcome that uh, are through these four principles, the first of which is a diversification. Uh, as Mitch can talk about for a moment, um, you know, yeah. leadership shifts constantly among the sectors in our markets, and no one sector that's been the, the leader in performance and, and outperformed in one year is yeah. ever really the no. leader no. in the second Steve, year.
2: Steve, you're very much on target in terms of diversification. Uh, just this last week, I was out uh, on the West Coast, and uh, a brokerage firm asked me to come out and, and, and give a presentation. And uh, someone in the audience you know, raised their hand. They, 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 you know, they, they inherited a lot of money. The husband has uh, $20 million in, uh, in General Motors stock, and uh, she, they had uh, $20 million uh, in, in uh, essentially Coca-Cola stock. And uh, what effectively they were saying is, well, listen, this is this, these investments have done very, very well for them. The General Motors less so, but the uh, Coca Cola uh, relatively well over long periods of time. And they're saying, well, what should we do? And the answer very clearly is, you should not have forty million dollars in two stocks, even though that is how it, it's grown over time, because. Uh, you've been fortunate enough that those companies have sustained General Motors ran into some issues in 08, uh, but generally speaking, they're both functioning companies. And the reason is you, you, you can't totally predict what's going to happen to any one individual stock. You can't tell me what's going to happen to Tesla over the next uh, five years. Right. Is one scenario, it's going to get much bigger. Another scenario, it's massively overvalued. Uh, and the price per car they sell is, is market value per car is way too high. So what you want to make sure you're doing Is that you own a basket of diversified stocks so that if any one thing happens uh to any stock you're you're still set and the the general uh way to look at this is you want to have at least 30 stocks in your portfolio uh no more than about three and a half percent in any stock and you want to have diversification across uh, sectors you don't want to have 30 energy stocks in your portfolio but if you have 30 stocks and about three percent per stock uh three and a half percent maximum per stock and your sector weightings are similar to the sector weightings of, let's say, the S and P five hundred. Uh, Steve, over long periods of time, you're going to you're going to do relatively well. That's well, very good.
3: Go ahead. I, I I'm, I'm. I always think about our, our perspective and yeah. the conversations I've heard from you in the past. And uh, I know that uh, we tend to, as investors, try and take that diversification a step further by using some models, some quantitative yeah. an, uh, analysis, some research and analysis of data to help us figure out how to overweight or underweight certain sectors with the idea that we're going to attempt to produce alpha over yeah. t- positive alpha over time. Can you speak to sure. how that process works? I, I can
2: tell you how not to do it. So I could, <laughs> let's start with that. The, the, the absolute worst way to do that is uh, to develop an outlook for a sector and then look for stocks in that sector. So the absolute worst thing you can do is listen to the radio show or the podcast or read research and say, well, Mitch said energy stocks are not going to do as well as financial stocks uh, because interest rates are going to be rising. I'm going to reduce my energy exposure. I'm going to increase my financial exposure. And that decision is a result of a, what, what's called a bottoms-up analysis. So what you want to do is find a way of selecting stocks that make sense statistically. And as you select those stocks, your resulting portfolio will have different biases in terms of sector exposure, and then you want to rein in the sector exposure so that you're not taking uh, too high bets in any one given sector. So for instance, you want to focus on stocks that are receiving upward earnings estimate revisions. My goodness, none of the energy stocks are getting upward earnings estimate revisions. Energy in the S&P 500 is like 9% of the portfolio. We're getting no stocks in the energy sector that are getting upward estimate revisions. Well, I want to make sure I have at least 5%, 4%, probably about 5% in energy. So I will look amongst the energy s- sector and find the 5% that is maybe not getting downward estimate revisions. And that what you want to have. And the reason is that's you need to stay diversified based on the first uh, tenet, which is you have to remain diversified. If you have a lot of if you have large numbers of stocks and you're saying, well, no weighting in any one stock is greater than one percent, but they're all in technology. You don't have that degree of diversification bottoms up analysis of portfolios. To result in the macro view is the way that you have to manage money. You cannot manage money saying, I think energy is going to outperform. I think it's going to underperform. I think it's going to outperform. Because to do that, you're trying to predict energy prices or you're trying to predict interest rates. And those things the market is already focused on. It's already the bond traders are already have the best prediction of what they think interest rates are going to be the commodities traders uh, the trillions of dollars floating around there have the best prediction of what they think oil prices are going to be so the key is to focus on stock valuations and identify equities that are either undervalued or that are likely to appreciate in price and construct a portfolio while trying to say, based on that alpha, let me make sure my risk is in line with the benchmark. It's very important in managing a portfolio to have a bottom-up analysis process as opposed to what's called a top-down. The top-down is, 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 is sexier. It's more exciting. It's, it's more interesting. You can explain it easier to people, but it's not the correct way to manage money.
1: Very, very interesting. Very interesting. So, where yeah. are we? go ahead. Go ahead, Good. Martin. No, no, I wanted to defer to you, Steve. Well, I,
3: I kind of want to talk about um, the second principle that, yeah. that always comes up, which is uh, don't try and time the market. Right. I mean, which you right. basically dovetailed into that anyway. Yeah. I mean, your first podcast uh, your first
2: steady investor yes. podcast, as I recall, uh, focused a lot on Brexit. Yes, it was, it was uh, it just more Brexit and the actual correct thing was to buy at Brexit. Right? right? yeah, I right. mean, my, my own family called me and yeah. said, should I be selling now? house, selling? And, right. you right. know, what did the market go down? It's
0: two
3: days. It, and it went then down it,
2: two days, went down about reversed. 6%, I think, then reversed. And it was actually positive for U.S. equities uh, because of the, the competitive positioning. But, Steve, the, the, the bigger issue is this concept of timing the market. You have to understand the way the market generates returns is a small gain followed by a small gain followed by a small gain that are not predictable and then you're going to have these periods of large losses. And what the way it, it works statistically is the small gains when you add them up give you a greater return than the large loss and you can't easily predict when that large loss is going to occur. Because people are so concerned about the loss, they do not stay in for the small gain. And so it's almost like um, you you have to be able to ignore losses to invest in the equity markets. If you respond to losses, if losses change the way you're making decisions, it will not work. And the re- and if you're concerned, if you' if you're worried about a loss occurring in the portfolio, you will never be able to make any return in the equity markets. The only way you make the returns is by getting these small gains over time, bearing the, the, the relatively larger loss and then getting small gains again. And what I look back is I can go back and we've been doing this, I've been doing this for about 20 years and, and you can go back and it, it each year you look at the headlines and you look at what the crisis is of that day. And it is real and it is, it is not imagined. it is a real crisis and there is a real issue and there's a real sort of negative scenario that could materialize. And in each of those cases, the correct course of action was to use the crisis to actually buy more equities. The correct thing to do in 1987 after the market crashed was to buy more equities. The correct thing to do in 1998 when long-term capital collapsed was to buy uh, Asian equities. The correct thing to do in 2000 uh, when Amazon collapsed was to buy more equities. The correct thing to do in 2008 when the financial crisis hit was to buy more equities. The reason is over long periods of time the market is what's called a non-zero sum game. It is, and I don't want to say it's a game, but it's 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 an economic term that means that it, it generates benefits to people over time without generating losers uh, because the equity, the earnings of the corporations that comprise the S and P 500 grow over time. So the key is to understand you can't predict the next inning, you can't predict the next day, you can't predict the next quarter, but you can successfully predict five and seven years out and ten years out. And you know that the market will be higher seven to 10 years out because that's what's always happened historically. And so the answer is you never say this time is different. Instead what you say is that what's happening this time is no different than the Vietnam War, than the Korean War, than Watergate, than this presidential election, than that presidential election, than the, company, the country not knowing who in 2000 is going to be the president. And what in all these cases, it causes uncertainty. People start to try and anticipate when that negative movement is going to occur. They get out at the wrong time. They get in at the wrong uh, time. You're better off just investing and staying invested over long periods of time. The majority of the, the, the market's gains over a year occur in a few number of days. That's it. The rest of the gains for the days offset each other so you have zero return. And if you're not invested in those few days, you miss the entire return. There's like four or five days where the market goes up, one, one and a half percent. Five days at 1.5% is 7.5% for the year. There's your return. And those five days don't occur next to each other, and they don't occur because this one got elected. They occur almost randomly throughout the year, and you can't predict when those days are going to occur and when the negative days are going to occur. The only thing you can say is statistically over long periods of time, there's an upward trend of the market. And that's how you make money. If you talk to people who are sort of older investors and you ask them, how did they make a tremendous amount of money in the market? It is never, well, I was able to get out before the 87 crash and I got, they never talk about market timing. What they always talk about is I worked at Merck. I was a manager at Merck. I was given stock options at Merck. I got uh, Merck shares. I believed in Merck. I liked the people who are working there. I thought they were doing a good job. I held my Merck shares for a 40-year period right. and I didn't sell. Well, what about this? What about generic drugs? What about when Merck never performed well for a five-year period? What about when it was a No, they, they believed in the company. And the and then, now there's a bias there that Merck uh, su- succeeded as a company and other companies did not. Uh, but the basic idea is the same. You invest, you don't move out of the market, and you stay invested over long periods of time. And over those long periods of time, you're going to do much, much better. So we've got the three. So the first one, uh, Steve, was uh, diversification. Uh, The second one was uh, timing the market. market. Well, the third one was timing the market. And then so the, that, the, seg- the second, second one, one was, was actually timing. The, the third one that uh,
3: that I hear a lot is is just staying in equities over time. In other words, that uh, which
2: you touched on. Yeah. The, sure. This this time it's different. You hear you've heard that. Yeah, for it's years, continual. Continual. Time. It's it's this time is different. This time is the end of equities. This time equities aren't going to appreciate. This time growth is gone. This time uh, you know the the government's going to collapse. This time uh, this is going to collapse. This is going to happen, and and there's going to be no growth in the country. There's going to be technological change. The robots are. coming. Whatever it right, is, right, right. It, it's constantly the same, and it always comes up to sort of explain the malaise that's occurring. And it's constantly the wrong thing well, once, to do.
1: In just a couple of minutes we have left, let's go on to number four. And uh, well, and the, f- the fourth is is
3: obvious to anybody who's
1: invested, and that's taking a look at, at uh, your allocation and, and
3: at least reviewing it. I know it, at uh, Zach's Investment Management, uh, every client is at least annually reviewed for their allocation, and I think you could take this down to another level as to uh, the investment process yes. we use as money managers
2: and what you do. We want to be trying to review client uh, accounts quarterly. Some clients don't want to be reviewed quarterly. They want to just talk on an annual basis, Correct. but we, we really want to be reviewing uh, accounts quarterly. And a real reason to do that is to make sure that the client can sort of stay steady with the current allocation over long periods of time. And again, going into 2008-2008, Cli- individuals who were 20% equity and 80% fixed income and just stayed there, did fine. Individuals who were 80% equity and 20% fixed income, and they go in and 08 happens and the market collapses, they lose all this money on the equity side and they don't make any decisions, we're fine. It's the clients who came in at 80% equity, 20% fixed income, and then the market falls and they say, I cannot take uh, the, the loss of wealth that is occurring when the market is falling. I need to switch. I need to be 20% equity, 80% fixed income. Uh, they, 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 don't, they, they, they lost money. And so, so the, 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 what, what has to happen for individuals to make money with equities over time is you have to allocate to equities, and you can't change that allocation to equities based on your market view. You have to stick with that allocation, that percentage that's allocated to equities uh, regardless of what's going on in the market. And the reason is, over long periods of time, the equities will do fine. And that's always happened historically. And it, I don't want to say it's always it's, it's always going to happen in the future. And the reason is the, the, the whole society is structured around uh, growth of the corporations that comprise the economy. And I can't tell you what the future is going to be. Uh, I can't say what's going to happen with the economy, but I can say the earnings of the S&P 500 seven to 10 years from now is going to be substantially is going to be higher than where they are currently. And if P multiples around where they are currently, the market's going to go up. Over that period, you're going to have all sorts of fluctuations. But if you stick to these four points, uh, you're going to do relatively well. Very good. Mitch, let's leave it right there. Uh, Steve Phillips, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Mitch Zacks, as always, it's a pleasure. (laughs) Uh, We'll
1: be back next week with The Steady Investor. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?